On today's episode, we talk with consent educator Mia Schachter. Some themes we discuss. Consent not as a set of rules, but as a practice. Why some people, particularly cisgendered men, shy away from learning about consent. And being willing to do something, even if you don't necessarily want to. Welcome to If I May Be So Bold, a podcast about relationships. The ones we have with others, the one we have with ourselves. And given that Dan and I are a couple, you're going to be hearing about our relationship too. I'm Dan Epstein, a recording artist, former opera singer, and relational coach. I'm Justin Waring Crane, a therapist, recovering perfectionist, and karaoke star. So we're welcoming our guest, Mia Schachter. Mia is a consent educator, intimacy coordinator for TV, film, and theater, a podcaster, musician, and writer living in their hometown of Los Angeles. They teach classes to individuals, couples, and groups online. You can follow their work on Instagram at Consent Wizard. So we want to welcome you, Mia. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're very excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. Oh man. Um yeah, I'm gonna need to like be like moving. I feel like to like release, That's great. you know, my like intuitive, you know, you know, movement. Okay. Um, but yeah, I just I think I wanna start by asking you um to tell us a little bit of your story and um how you came to the work that you do. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, I, my dad is a talent manager. I grew up in Los Angeles, um, sort of, you know, uh, uh, experiencing the entertainment industry that way. Um, and I think I knew that I wanted to work in the arts. I thought I wanted to be an actor. Um, and I was studying acting and improv and dance and music. Um, and then, uh, moved to New York for college and really fell in love with theater acting, which is a sort of different ball game. Um, and what I loved about theater was really the process, like the rehearsal and the sort of excavation. And I wasn't so interested in the performance aspect, like the final product. Um, and so that got me like that realization sort of steered me towards, um, writing and directing, theater. Um, and then I had two really horrible experiences with, um, sort of like ego maniacal, um, playwrights. Uh, and one I would say really did fall into kind of the me too umbrella of like sort of sexual harassment territory. Um, uh, and he's like a pretty famous playwright. Um, it wouldn't be surprising to anybody, but I've, I just won't say his name on here because I don't feel like it. Yeah. Um, so after that, I, um, had been doing ceramics already for a while and people had started to like order ceramics from me. And so after I had those two experiences and then I also like witnessed a show that was sort of an interview in my friend's apartment, um, 
with a playwright, a third playwright whose career I really admired. And she was, ta- she was like in her forties. And I was like, you know, I, if I could be like Tina Satter, I would, that would be a great career for me. And I think Tina Satter is actually doing really well right now. So that's awesome for Tina Satter. But in this interview, she was talking about how she lived in Bushwick with two other roommates and none of them could afford cheese. And I went downstairs to my apartment after that party and I cried like uncontrollably sobbed. And I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore because I had gotten a job as an assistant director for this creepy playwright. And, um, it was like a big deal. It was like the sort of the first thing in my life where I was like, Whoa, okay, this could like set me on a path, you know? And, um, my payment for like a month and a half of rehearsals was a one month Metro card. So, you know, throughout, so like all that sort of combined, I was like, I think I need to make a career shift. Um, and I went sort of full speed ahead into ceramics and I started to notice like, okay, the same themes are coming up over and over and like whatever medium I'm working in, I'm still dealing with like sex, sexuality, relationships, um, gender and all these things. Like I was, um, I had a piece commissioned for a, um, an art installation about, um, domestic violence. Um, I had been making ceramic sex toys. Um, you know, all these things that I was starting to see, like, no matter where I go, it's like, it's kind of all the same. Um, and then after two, uh, like Christmas seasons and feeling like, I, I don't like working alone. I don't, this is really physically demanding, blah, blah, blah. Um, I decided to move home to LA and I wanted to write for TV. I thought like writing on a team would be, um, really positive for me. Um, and then I got, I, a friend of mine, um, and I started like a little writer's group. Um, and then she asked me if I would be willing to, or interested in writing a romantic comedy with her about a woman whose job was to choreograph sex scenes. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And also, um, is that a real job? Like I've never heard of that. And what happened was, um, as we started writing it, all these articles started coming out about this new job in Hollywood called an intimacy coordinator. So we started to realize like, okay, we actually have to do a lot of research on this. This is like a much larger scope of a job than we had initially thought. Um, and then I got a job as a casting assistant on a show called the affair. We hired an intimacy coordinator on that show. I asked if I could interview her because of my movie. She said, yes, that was my cat. Um, and then, uh, after she explained the job to us and my friend left, I was like, are you training people? Like I will pick up your dry cleaning. I will get you coffee, like whatever I have to do. I want to do this job. And at the time, this was like the end of 2018. Um, she was the only intimacy coordinator in LA. So she was looking to train people because she kept having to turn jobs down and she had no one to refer them to. Um, so she trained me and that was how I really got, that's how I became an intimacy coordinator. And then through that, um, this is like the long winding road of this, but through that I was exposed to like really comprehensive and like concrete consent education in a way that I had not been before. And as I was learning about that stuff in intimacy coordination training, 
I remember being so struck by like, why am I just finding out about this? Like, and why isn't this widely available and how can I do that? Um, Mm. so I started teaching classes and I started kind of developing like a one-on-one practice. Um, and then in, uh, March of 2020 production shut down. I moved back in with my parents and I thought like, I wish there was like something that I could do to teach something during this time where everyone is so isolated and consent was the thing. So I started doing that. Um, yeah, at the beginning of 2020 and I sort of like posted on Instagram, like I'm going to teach a class, you know, $10 and 10 people signed up. And then it really just snowballed from there. And now that's like, I still intimacy coordinate, but that's really my primary business. I'm thinking of how, you know, I got so little, I didn't get any sex ed in school. Um, I didn't get any, um, training around consent. And I'm wondering, what do you, as you were coming into this work, what were some concepts or tools that you were saying, Oh, oh, if I had only had this and Mm -hmm. these are some like really important ones that, um, as we're, you know, raising kids and, you know, teaching parents how to teach their kids about this stuff. Um, what would be some of those like really gold nuggets, I guess, that you wish was more like widely understood? Yeah. Um, well, there's a few, one that really like blew my mind and, and really fundamentally changed how I think. And it's like something that's on my mind every day is called the wheel of consent. Um, that's by Betty Martin. Um, and it really gets into kind of like the nitty gritty of, um, whether something is a request or an offer and getting clarity on who it's for. So it's the difference between saying like, um, would you like a hug or like, can I have a hug? Um, you know, the intention behind both of those is really different. And I think there are people who like, don't particularly like hugs themselves, but are willing to give someone a hug if they would really, if they really want one, but if someone offers them a hug, they're never going to say, yeah, you know, um, and that can, that comes up a lot in sex. Betty Martin really developed this, um, in the, to talk about the realm of touch. Um, there, you know, there's often a lot of confusion of like, are you going down on me because you want to go down on me? Or are you going down on me because you want to do that mm-hmm. for me? And then like, what does that mean in terms of like feedback or direction? You know, like those are going to all sort of take on different shapes depending on who it's for. Um, but I think it also plays a, a large role in terms of just interpersonal consent. Like, um, you know, the difference between saying like, oftentimes we'll like disguise and a request as an offer because it's like harder to make a request. So we'll say something like, do you want to take out the trash or do you want to drive when really we're saying like, would you please drive tonight mm-hmm. or something like that? Um, so being really clear about that, um, is something that I've gotten from the wheel of consent. Um, I think other than that, some stuff that I talk about a lot that I really wish was, would make it a bit more into the mainstream. I mean, I see people that I talk to, talking about it. Um, but it's definitely, definitely hasn't made it into like public school, um, or really like any school, um, curriculum is, uh, that I, I think that there's like a huge misconception around the word enthusiasm as it relates to consent. Um, I think that a lot of times what looks like enthusiasm is just people pleasing, you know, it's people being like, yeah, of course, sure. No problem. Like that kind of thing. Um, whereas like if someone actually takes time to check in with themselves, that often looks 
really unenthusiastic. You know, if you ask someone if they want to do something and they're like, um, yeah, yeah, I could do that. Like that does not look enthusiastic to me, but I would much, I feel much better about going ahead with that situation than the other situation. Um, and another thing is that, you know, requiring enthusiasm doesn't really account for anyone who's experienced any sexual trauma. It doesn't account for sex work. Um, it doesn't account for certain, um, it, it also doesn't even account for like, so one of the things from the wheel of consent is like, you can want to do something that's your own desire, but you can also be willing to do something for someone else when it's their desire. And both are consent. Like you are fully in consent in both of those situations. So a clear, you want an example? Could, sorry. Could you actually just say those two things one more time so we can yeah. delineate? Yeah. Yeah. Wanting and willing. So you can want to do something that's your own desire and you can be willing to do something for someone else when it's their desire. And willingness often doesn't look nearly as enthusiastic as wanting. So, you know, that comes up frequently in like a kink dynamic where like maybe someone wants to get peed on and their partner is like, yeah, I can do that for you. That's not something that I'm like, Ooh, can I please like, you know, but if that's what you want, I'm willing to do that. And that's not any less consensual. So this requirement of enthusiasm really just results from where I'm standing in a lot of like performed enthusiasm, like a lot of fake enthusiasm. And then I've also started to see it show up in, in ways where I'm, where people are starting to say whether or not they're actually feeling this way that like that their consent is being violated anytime they do something that they are merely willing to do and not wanting to do. So like this came up on my Instagram recently where an, um, an actor was saying, um, that like in the context of, of intimacy coordination and for an actor on a set, like, um, none of that is consensual because actors always feel pressured to do things, whether or not they want to do them. And my point was like, an actor can be willing to do so. Like I would, I would find it really problematic if an actor that I was talking to was enthusiastic and wanted to make out with their coworker tomorrow, you know, like that would be, that would be creepy. Um, if they're willing to do it, then we can go ahead. Um, and so I don't think that because they're willing to do it and not wanting to do it, that it's not consensual. So like this requirement mm. of this word, this word enthusiasm has come to mean that like, unless someone is jumping up and down about something that their consent is being violated or they're, that they're engaging with some mm. in something that's non-consensual. And I, I don't know. I just don't, I don't want to live that way. Just feeling like I'm like, you know, every time I take out the trash, I'm like, I, I guess I'll do this because I yeah. have to, but this is not consensual. <laughs> right. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's so, I just felt so relieved when I saw that post on your Instagram because when I was introduced to the idea of enthusiastic consent and it was by my boyfriend at the time, you know, so it was like, and that was already sort of a tough dynamic and I wasn't, you know, really getting my needs met in that relationship. Then it was like, now, not only do I just have to be willing to do this, 
I to have sex. I need to be so excited. I need to be like dying to like tear the other person's clothes off. And like that should be the expectation every single time. Or it's like I'm not having sex the right way. Mm-hmm. And so then it just like added all this pressure. And I was just like never then feeling like I was doing it right. So I felt that yeah. was just like so I just felt such relief. It was really healing mm-hmm. for me to see that. <laughs> yeah. Funny. And it's interesting to me and I'm seeing a thread between like the intimacy part of it with this idea where it's like, I, I, this is my, my thought and I'm telling me if you agree, um, that like the desire to have the other person have the onus, the responsibility or be the enthusiastic one is like, so I don't have to feel vulnerable. Like, mm. since it's like more vulnerable to like have your needs met and feel like yeah. it's, it's like, that's a, being done for your needs as opposed to like, Oh, well they wanted to, or like, you know, or like, I'm going to kind of behave in a way where I'm going to like, let you know, I want you to be enthusiastic about this to like, so I don't have to feel like I'm risking anything. I, I really like that take. I think that that relates to something that, um, that I have talked about before that, um, a student brought up once, which was that it can feel a lot more vulnerable to make requests than to make offers. And I think that's, that sort of is exactly that to that point, you know, to, to say like, can you do this for me is a lot more vulnerable than saying, um, like, do you want to do this? I've had that happen in a, in a relationship where someone was like, around monogamy, like wanting to, uh, to sort of close up our relationship and saying like, do you want to do that? And I remember at the time being like, you know, I think I really need to be clear about this. I'm willing to do that for you for now, but it is not my own desire to do that. And I, that needs to be very clear. That's what you Mm -hmm. said. I mean, not in those exact words, but yeah, I was like, I, Mm -hmm. I'm, like I, I can do that. I will do that. Um, but I want you to know that that's like not what I would be asking for. Like, can we rephrase that? You know, like you're asking me if I want to, and what I'm hearing is that you want to, Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, that was like a pretty fraught situation where I was often being kind of like tested, um, unbeknownst to me about like whether or not I was, um, I don't know, like he, we, he was his idea to open up our relationship and then he never acted on it. And when he asked me if I did and I said, yes, he was like, I was hoping that you just wouldn't want to. Boo, boo. Yeah. Ew, ew, ew. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big thumbs down. (laughs) Did that go on for a while? Which part? Uh, I guess the relationship, like when, once you got into that territory. Yeah, that was like an on again, off again <laughs> relationship for like six years all through my mm. 20s. Oh, yeah. Ugh, it yeah. sucks. It sucks. I mean, yeah, yeah. nobody likes to be, um, you know, no one likes to have a trap set up for them. You know? <laughs> it was a trap. It was definitely <laughs> a trap. I, I just really, I think my mind is just really being blown right now with this distinction between I can be willing to do things that I don't want to do mm-hmm. and still be within my boundaries and be consenting. Yeah. Um, and I think that in the way that our society sort of 
understands relationships and those dynamics, it's like, oh, if you're only willing to do something and you don't want to, that somehow it's worth less, like what you're giving. That's interesting. I actually experience it as the opposite where people think that if you want to do something, it's worth less. Like they Mm. shouldn't have to pay you as much because it's Mm. something that you would do whether or not you were getting paid. I could see that side too. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how I see like artist friends justify their own exploitation Mm -hmm. just by, by being like, well, you know, like I love doing it. So you really don't have to pay me for it or something like that. You know, I hear that over and over again. That's so common. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what do you mean, Justin? Like with the willingness is worth less. I think it's like, oh, well, if you love me, like you should want to do Mm. this. You shouldn't just be willing. Like, I think willingness has this connotation of like, maybe more like begrudging or like, Mm -hmm. there's not like intrinsic joy or motivation behind it. Um, at least that's just my conception of, you know, I guess pop culture and like how dynamics are portrayed. It's like, you should just be dying to, to do this for the other person. And because they want it, you want it just as badly, you know, (laughs) which I think is, is merging. And I think is kind of getting into like codependent territory. Definitely. I think it's really hard. I mean, I think it goes back to what you said, Dan, that like, it, it can be really hard to, um, especially if it's something that like is stigmatized in any way. Um, like here's a really specific example. Like if someone wants someone to, um, eat their asshole and that's something that they, as many of us have, have like have learned is disgusting and taboo and whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, if that is something that you desire, it can be really scary to ask someone to do that for you, especially Mm -hmm. even like, even if you have done it to the other person, you know, that you just might fear that this person is going to be like, ew, no, I'm never gonna do that. Um, and there's like a willingness that will probably satisfy that request. Um, but of course I, and I completely understand the desire to see someone be like, hell yeah. Like I would love to do that. Mm -hmm. And you might get that, but you might not. And still being willing to accept that and like, let yourself feel pleasure while this person is doing something that might not be their own genuine desire gets really fraught. Like, I think it can be really hard to relax into something when you're like, Oh, this person's just like doing me a favor. Mm. Mm, Totally. I, what do you think it takes to, to, to ease into that relaxation or to surrender into that aside from like, obviously like trust and safety with your partner? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to depend on like what the thing is. I, I would think that, um, certain things that might help would be like, um, uh, sort of like setting a time limit might be something like setting the bounds of like a container for it so that no one is then like, okay, have I done this for long enough? Or, or the other person being like, um, Oh God, like, do they still want to do this? Or are they just like doing it? Cause I asked them, you know, like that kind of thing, just like having sort of a boundaried container around a particular act can help with things like that. Um, I think, 
I think there's like, there's like two different kinds of pleasure that we're talking about. And like one as, as the person doing the act, one is like, this is my genuine desire. I love doing this and I want to do this to you. And then there's a second one, which is like, I love doing things that make you feel good. And so I think that you can be willing to do something and wanting to make the other person feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the act itself, you maybe have, you know, neutral feelings about, or it's something that you can't do all the time or, you know, any number of things like that. Yeah. I've never, I've actually never really encountered that idea of creating a time, a time limit, Mm -hmm. um, or like a container is a nice way to put it, but like, yeah, you have, I mean, (laughs) with us, you know, that's something actually my therapist recommended was like, because Dan feels like anxiety about time, you know, right. Being like, let's, you know, what if you had an hour and it was like, that was the agreed upon time where you're going to, you know, connect or like, you know, be playful physically or whatever. And then, you know, that would maybe ease his anxiety a little bit. So it's interesting that you forgot Mm. that. Well, I I didn't forget that. Um, I'm talking about specifically for a sex act. Oh, okay. Um, Because it is like such... It's such a vulnerable and and sometimes scary thing where it's like two people are engaging in a sexual act. Like if they're both kind of deferential people, they might just like let mm-hmm. it go on way longer than either of them wants to be doing it. Right. And then they both yeah. like resent the other one type right. of thing. I mean, I think so. The time limit also can be a little more a little wider than like the specific act. It might be something like, you know, for, for the next hour, um, like I'm going to be in service to you Mm. and I, I will love being in service to you. That doesn't necessarily mean that every particular sex act is going to be something that I'm super stoked to do, but I want to be here for you today during this period of time. Cause that can also, that can help, you know, the person who's, doing the giving in that situation, um, and sort of helps like set an intention, but also for the person receiving in that situation, um, that person can, you know, anytime you start to feel like the guilt come up of like, do they still want to be doing this? Like, gosh, is their mouth, is their jaw? Okay. You know, like whatever (laughs) it is, then you're like, no, this is like, this is for me. That was like what we set up at the beginning of this. So I'm going to come back into my body and I'm going to relax and I'm going to trust that this person knows their own limits. Mm -hmm. Like that's where I think a lot of the trust stuff comes up. Yeah. Mm, That knows their own limits and is going to honor those. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it's kind of each person's responsibility to if if some if they're finding they are resenting the other partner based on the imbalance to verbalize it. Because I think Mm -hmm. it's easy to get out of out of whack in that way. Yeah, definitely. I think that's where a lot of like people pleasing in bed becomes a really big issue is like when someone doesn't know their limits or like is willing to go past their limits um, because they, you know, whatever, there are so many reasons why people go past their limits, Mm but, um, yeah, like not being able to verbalize it and not being able to say no. And what I've found over and over again to be the case is that when someone can tell me like, okay, I'm done (laughs) or like, um, I need to shift to be more comfortable or, um, or, you know, I have 30 minutes, like whatever, like those things 
actually make me trust them more. I think the fear on the other side is that that person's going to feel rejected Mm -hmm. or that they're going to feel like they've asked too much of you or something like that. But it's always, it's, I'm surprised over and over the way that like when a friend can tell me like, um, you know, I only have 30 minutes to chat or, um, actually I'm not available for that right now. I'm sorry, you're having a hard time, you know, like whatever it is when they can really tell me what their capacity is or tell me that they're not available, then I go, okay. Then I like really can trust that you're not doing stuff just cause I'm asking you to. Mm, totally. Oh, yeah. That, that, that makes me want to ask you about having now become so knowledgeable about these ideas around consent and enthusiasm. Um, how have, how has that been to engage with those things in your personal life or like, are there any specific examples of when you've, um, found yourself, you know, um, operating with this knowledge in a new way in your personal life? Yeah. All the time. Um, I think there was like, there was a moment at the farmer's market where like I go to the same, um, vegetable stand and normally when I buy carrots, like the person that checks me out at the cat at the register will say like, do you want the tops off of the carrots? And then one time they didn't say that. And I was like, you can take the tops off as though it was an offer. Like you're, you may take the tops off if you would like to, you know? Hmm. And then I was like, that was a, that was a request that I was hiding as a disguise. So it's like little moments like that. And then all the way into sexual scenarios and, and dating and stuff where I'll be like, um, well, like there was an instance, someone I was dating last year where I was like, it was relatively new still. Um, and I was like, uh, do you like getting texts about like sex stuff that I'm thinking about throughout my day as it relates to you? Um, and he was like, normally, yeah, but like, I'm having a really hard, like stressful day to day. And I'm going from like meeting to meeting, to meeting, to meeting. Hmm. And I don't think I'm like going to be able to like fully enjoy that today. And I was like, Oh my God, thank goodness. How shitty would it have been to like send what would have felt like a vulnerable text to me and then to have it not received very well or to have it be, um, you know, sort of like brushed past. And then I would have felt like I did something wrong and I shouldn't have sent, you know, or whatever. Mm. And I thought, Oh my goodness. First of all, so glad I asked first, obviously. And then second of all, so glad that this person feels like he can tell me that and Mm -hmm. not worry that I'm going to be like, Oh no, I'm yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's a great example. (laughs) Gosh. I just feel like my mind is opening right up. (laughs) Dan, do you have another question about um, men? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, we have one of those. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you in one of your posts, you indicated that you don't have a lot of cis men enrolling in your consent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have some thoughts on probably why that is, but I'd love to hear what you think Mm -hmm. is going on. Um, and also just, I guess, you know, why are people, why do people bristle at the ideas of consent around consent? Mm. 
Gosh, there's a lot in there. I mean, one, one thing is that I think when it comes to like the way that people value investments, um, uh, cis men, I think tend to prioritize like, uh, skills, skill development. Um, and these are definitely like skills and tools and stuff, but I think it falls more into the sort of like self-improvement category, which people of other genders are more, uh, tend to be more interested in, um, pursuing or investing in. I think also it breaks down to like the kinds of labor that are prioritized for people of different genders. So like emotional labor is not something that, um, cis men are typically prioritizing. Um, whereas like, the rest of the gender spectrum um, tends to have to take the brunt of that or like mm-hmm. do the most of that labor. Um, I think that another piece is that cis men tend to uh, f- feel that saying I'm taking a consent class would be some kind of admission of guilt or, um, you know, some kind of implication that they are, um, that they've committed some kind of violation and now need to seek training on how not to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we can start Mm. there. I'd be curious to hear what you think is going on. Yeah. I think the last point that you said, um, is close, is close to like kind of what I was thinking about of just being the demographic that is most likely to sort of get it wrong, hmm. um, in a straight relationship, I guess, or, um, yeah, I just could see that, like, <laughs> I don't know. I could see the block being there, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just like always go back to that Aziz Ansari thing from several years yeah, ago. And, like, I know. I think about that one a lot. It was like, yeah, it was the one where it felt like there were more people arguing both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of like, everyone was like, okay, but like, it's impossible to legislate this, like, because right. uh, of all these reasons. So I'm definitely curious about that as well. Um, your perspective on sort of how, or I guess, how do you engage with like hearing about a scenario like that and like hearing mm. sort of this, the, the evidence um, and trying to like legislate out something yeah, there's a lot of things firing in my brain. One is like, I am really not ever much interested in like in the law. I feel so not, um, taken care of by Mm. the law, um, that it's just not really where I put my attention or time. So in terms of like legislating something like that, like, I don't think that, um, I don't think that Aziz Ansari committed anything that we would consider a crime. Um, I think that that story to me highlights something that I say a lot, which is um, that I think that insecurity is a social toxin and confidence is an ethical mandate. I think that like the most harm caused often comes from someone feeling insecure. And so feeling like they need to feel powerful or that they need to Mm. get what they want in order to have some kind of proof that they are worth anything. Um, you know, I just read this piece on Amy Schumer and she, she was talking about how, um, like so many of these men who in the comedy world, uh, who have been, you know, like Louis CK and Chris, Chris Delia and, 
others, like it really is a, a facet of like, they were not, these girls didn't pay attention to them when they were the age of these girls or, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the case of Chris Dahlia, but, um, in the case of Louis CK, I think as well, like he has never felt like he got attention from women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, uh, he has abused power dynamics in order to feel some sense of like control and, and power. Um, so in the case of Aziz Ansari, you know, like he's a, he's an awkward dude. Um, like I would imagine that he, um, has gotten way more attention in like the romantic realm, uh, since becoming famous. And I think, you know, you use the word evidence. What I see in that story is that, um, there's, I, I talk a lot about how like, in the law around consent and assault and things like that, there is a lot of prioritization and this is reflected in our culture. Like it's a, you know, it's a symptom of our culture that prioritizes things like reason and logic and language, like words that people said, things that you can prove over things like feelings and intuition and emotions and, um, what's called neuroception, which is like your unconscious ability to like gauge your safety around you and other people's emotional states. Mm -hmm. So like I teach a whole class on nonverbal consent. It's, um, and we talk about things like prosody, which is like the way that someone says what they say. So it's everything besides the words, it's their tone of voice and the volume and the pitch and things like that. We also talk about things like eye contact and body language and facial expression and some, and your breath, um, and your heart rate and all these things. And so when I think about what I read about the Aziz story was that he was looking for the evidence and he was not willing to see, to notice all the other ways that this person was saying no without Mm -hmm. using the word no. Um, and when I talk about consent, I'm talking about like that whole underlying, practice of making those unconscious cues conscious, um, you know, noticing how someone is interacting with you beyond just what they're saying to you. It's really hard to say the word no. Um, it's often nearly impossible to say the word no. Mm. Uh, and, and then I think when I say like, I think confidence is an ethical mandate. I think like very often when I'm feeling insecure, I will notice like I'm getting really selfish here. I'm getting really self-absorbed. I'm like only concerned with like, how do I recover? How do I make Mm -hmm. sure that people think that I'm smart or interesting or cool or whatever? And then as soon as I can like get back into my body, I can feel a lot more confident. I can feel grounded. I can check in with my breath and that's how I'm going to be able to actually listen to people. It's and the insecurity gives you an agenda. It gives you a motive. Whereas coming from a confident place, you're like listening actively and you're reacting honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting too, because like we're talking about an actor here. And I also sort of see a correlation between that insecure space is when people start performing, they're yeah. putting on a show and that confident space is where people are what I would consider acting. Cause what I think acting is, is being present, listening, reacting from an honest place, not pre-planning what you're going to say. You know, you don't have a goal. You're just really in the moment. So that's where I think you can like actually access 
like a comprehensive consent practice, an embodied consent practice, I don't think you can really access it from a state of like heightened insecurity. Uh, I just want to take a breath. Yeah, I'm just that. like very much in listening mode because you have so much. <laughs> you that. have so much knowledge. Insecurity is a social toxin. Confidence is an ethical mandate. Yeah. So ethical mandate being like we need to you need to be able like learn how to find your confidence in those situations so that you can be present. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's how you're going to be the best person, you know, the person that you want to be in those moments. And I want to just like, I feel increasingly as like my following grows and stuff and like, especially what's been going on over the last few days, um, on my Instagram, which has been like a lot of hostility from, from, um, certain people, primarily anti-sex work, quote unquote, feminists. Um, I think it's really important to say like, I fuck this stuff up all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I remind myself confidence is an ethical mandate because that's what helps me go, Oh, you're feeling insecure right now. Like, don't forget, like that's when you do stuff that you regret. So like, let's Mm. find the confidence, but that doesn't mean that I am like perfect at it all the time. Um, and that also, you know, that's something that works for me. Like I studied philosophy in college. I think about, the ethics of these things. And, and, you know, that's sort of derived from like Kantian certain things, um, that Kant talks about, but it doesn't work for everybody. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work for everyone to go like, I'm going to be the version of myself that I want to be if I can feel confident right now. And that might be because they have different, you know, we have like different values or, or we have, or, or they have some, trauma that gets really triggered in those moments and they're like really unable to access those things. And so feeling insecure means is like a, you know, kind of an indicator for them like, Oh, okay. I actually have to like leave this situation or something. And so, you know, that's what works for me. I I feel like we missed um, one, one area I would love to just kind of circle back to is going back to why, why men aren't signing up for oh, yeah. your workshops. I'm, I'm just curious, can you speak to, um, do you think that there's like a certain idea that men might have about what it is that like, if they knew what it actually was, would feel differently? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think so. And I, I think, I think a lot of people think that consent is like rules and restrictions Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't quite think about it that way. I think, however, there's a certain way that when in my creative life, like my life as an artist, I really appreciate structure and constraints because then I feel like I can actually play mm-hmm. within bounds. Like when something is so vague and so open-ended, I think about it like, like, you know, when you go to a diner and you get like a 45 page menu, like mm-hmm. that, I, I can't hell. deal with that. It's hell. Yeah. I want eight options. And like, even then I'm like, just tell me what's the best one. And I have yeah. so many dietary restrictions that I really appreciate the way that I'm like, okay, I have these two options. Like, great. Mm-hmm. It's really helpful. And it like actually helps with my anxiety. Um, 
to have those limitations. And, you know, I think about that with music, having constraints. I think about that with writing. You know, it's so much easier to write when someone gives you a prompt versus when Mm -hmm. someone is like, write about whatever you want for 3000 words. Mm -hmm. Like I will never write that essay. I will write an essay. If you say, I want this, something on this topic. Um, so I really value constraints and structure. I think that people often think that boundaries are rules. And so what they're going to experience is that they're going to come into this class and they're going to be told, do this, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're going to feel like, and then there's also, I think an additional fear of like, I could potentially realize that I've been doing a lot of stuff really wrong. Right. Um, and my take on that is like, embrace that. Cause you're going to be fucking this up forever. Like I fuck, I'm going to fuck this up forever. I screw up consent all the time. Like, I think that's a really important point. Like you're never going to be perfect at these things. And so getting comfortable in that space of being like, Oh, I fucked that up. Or like, Ooh, that was hypocritical. I said this. And then I did something that was like totally out of line with that. Um, that's where you find like the space to, to grow. Like that's where you go, Oh, okay. I need to like really pay attention to this. But I think a lot of people are really afraid of that. And they're afraid that they're going to get yelled at. I actually, you know what? I ran into someone that I knew in high school this past weekend and, um, another neurotic Jew. And he, uh, I was explaining to him what I do. And, and I was like, I'm teaching an in-person workshop this weekend. Like you can come if you want to come. And he was like, Mia, if I'm being totally honest, like that makes me so nervous because I'm afraid that I'm going to get yelled at. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm not going to yell at you. And he's like, I'm afraid that I will speak about my experience and how I feel and things that I've done. And people will go, what the fuck is wrong with you? And like, and yell at me and tell me that I'm wrong, that I've been doing things wrong. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's like really honest of this person. And at the same time, like what a limiting belief. Cause now you're not going to take this class. (laughs) Yeah. Amongst other I mean, things, yeah. you know, the ways that that really gets in your way if you're just afraid that you're going right. to do everything wrong. Yeah. And it's like the answer that he gave you is like, I feel like all you can think is like, yeah, this seemed that would be really valuable for you then yeah. to actually take the class. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, no one's going to yell at you. And at the same time, like you might find out that you are doing some stuff wrong. You know, I I found out yesterday that I've been doing a bunch of stuff wrong in a phone call with a student. And and I think that was like that was really valuable. It's important. And there was sort of this um, there. I You know, I, I hear this quite a bit like it comes up on my Instagram. It comes up from students. It comes up from people in my life where they're like, you know, you're the one who like teaches consent. And I'm like, right. And I also when I'm teaching it, I teach about how you're going to screw it up and people are, and that you need feedback from your community in order to see where the practice can go that it hasn't reached yet. Right. This misconception that if you're teaching about something, you're not learning about it anymore. Yeah. That's outrageous. Yeah. Kaka. Totally. Kaka. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really curious about what are some um, 
fun games people Ooh. can play to explore and practice these yeah. ideas? Um, well, I have a video on my Instagram of a no, a series of no exercises that I do. I did it before we got right. on. This cool. call. <laughs> um, I mean, doing them in person is obviously like a lot more impactful, but I think even doing them virtual has been really great over the course of the last couple of years. Um, and what I would recommend is just doing it in like different realms of your life. So like I do these no exercises with like, I just, I hired a new assistant a month or two ago. And I was like, look, it's really important to me that you feel comfortable saying like, I'm not available right now. Or, um, that's not a task that I'm going to be able to complete. Or I think you should find someone else to do that particular thing. Um, or I want my assistant to be able to, like, if I'm like, what do you think of this idea? Like I want, I really, it was really important to me to like have an assistant who felt like they could, um, mm -hmm. have opinions about this work, you know, and like share them with me. And for me to be able to be like, what do you think of this post? And then for them to be like, that post is stupid, you know, <laughs> or like in some fashion be like, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and so we practiced it. Like I practiced asking them like, you know, can you proofread this email for me? Or like, um, can you work on Saturday or, you know, whatever, and have them say no to me. And then we switched, which I think is also really important. Um, but you can also do it in bed. So you, so, so the way that it, this game works is that you ask a question, can I do this? Um, or can you do this? And then the person just says, no, just no over and over and over again. And then you, as the person asking, you take a deep breath and you say, thank you. And at first that thank you can be really awkward, very uncomfortable. Um, but you do get used to it. And as you build on your asks, um, it starts to feel a lot more, uh, it, it like has, uh, it gets deeper, I think, where you start to go like, whoa, I'm so glad you know that about yourself that you like, don't want me to do that. Thank you for telling me that so that I don't violate you. Um, so the first step is just no, 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 no. And then the second one is like, yes or no, but, um, you won't actually do the thing, even if you get a yes. And then the third step would be, um, if you're in person, obviously like when you get a yes, you can actually do it. Um, and then you check in afterwards and you say, was that what you expected? Um, that's a tip from Rachel Flesher. She's an intimacy coordinator and she, she teaches that instead of, was that okay? Because of the people pleasing impulse to be, to say, yeah, you know, was that right. okay? Yeah, that's fine. And there's also a really mm -hmm. significant difference, which is like something might not be what you expected, but it's totally fine, you know, and something also mm -hmm. might be not what you expected or sorry. Um, it might be exactly what you expected and really not fine. Um, so like both of those can happen. Mm. Um, so then the, the next step would be to get as specific as you possibly can. So like the way that I do this in like non sex related situations would be to say like, can I, um, squeeze your right bicep with my left hand for five seconds at a pressure of a three. So just getting like as detailed as you possibly can. And the goal there mm. is, you know, specificity is a big part of consent, um, and I think there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of room for creativity and specificity. That's, that's a, mm. a fun creative challenge for me. Um, mm -hmm. and then, uh, and then it's also to just practice thinking about like, what is it that I actually want to do right now? Um, and then, cause when you get a yes around that, it's amazing the way that that frees you up to go like, okay, this person like actually knows what they are signing up for. And then mm -hmm. all my responsibility is now is to like, stick to what I said. 
Um, mm. And then again, like, so you do the spe- specific ask, and then you say, was that what you expected? And sometimes someone will say like, I was expecting it to feel weird that you were that close to me. And actually it was fine. Or like I was expecting, or like, actually that feels more like a three, not a five. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so like stuff comes up like that. And and another, another reason why you want to get so specific is to, um, like manage expectations and eliminate surprises to the best of your ability. Yeah. Can I read some of your Mad Libs? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I loved these. So mm-hmm. on your Instagram, you have a post called Consent Mad Libs, and there's a few different slides. But the first one is, "Can I trace your hip with my finger?" The next one, "Can I boop your nose three times?" <laughs> I really loved that one. <laughs> I sent that one to my friends. Uh, can I squeeze your butt gently? And it's like, you can even get more specific, right? With some of those, it's like, well, what's gently, you know, when you were talking about different pressure Mm -hmm. and numbers associated with that. So I just love that. And it doesn't, it's like consent has this connotation, I think of like being stuffy or not fun. And it's like, well, it can be very fun and really playful. Yeah. I kept like looking over your content. I kept just I, well, I started actually today just thinking about like, oh, right. Like consent is so tied to um, like if we're all people pleasing and like not checking in with ourselves, like we're more easily controlled. We're more like susceptible to like societal power dynamics and stuff. So like mm. consent seems really powerful to me in that regard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, you said something like um, that cis men uh, might feel like they're the ones who are like most likely to screw up consent in at least like heterosexual relationships. And immediately my mind goes to like, well, why is that? And, um, first of all, is that true? And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it is. I think that everyone screws up consent in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the second thing is like, why, why is that the case? And, you know, from thinking about like the systems that cause that or promote that, um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of narrative that we see in the media, um, that says like the, the man in the dynamic needs to be the aggressor. He needs to be the initiator. And then there's also a lot of, um, a lot of sort of, uh, it's, you know, you see it a lot that like women in giant air quotes, like women are supposed to be, um, like that we need to be excited and I'm lumping myself into that just as far as like how I was socialized and, um, Mm -hmm. how I'm perceived largely by most people, um, that we're supposed to be like, um, uh, you know, we, we need to sort of like appease men's egos and we need to Mm -hmm. be, uh, like if, if we don't want to have sex, then like we're the problem. And, um, that we should be, uh, taken and, you know, like, uh, submissive in all these different ways. And so that teaches us not to speak up when we're not comfortable to ignore our body signals that we're not comfortable. And then it also teaches men or boys, um, that, that they need to be pursuing at all times or there's something Mm -hmm. wrong with them. And so then that compounds itself when it's like, well, then if I do pursue and then I get rejected, then I've done something wrong. And so I need to, uh, I need to like achieve that goal in order for like it to be affirmed that I'm like a real man or like sexy or attractive or like fulfilling my societal role and so on. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. And that like you're sort of hearing you process that just like brings me back to um, the thing with the sexual assault cases. Right. It's like so many people probably the way they're engaging with consent is through the lens of that. Yes. And so maybe that's part of it. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of like, and I think there's also like, there's like really subtle linguistic differences. Like just because something was non-consensual does not mean that, um, it was assault, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, just because, uh, and then I think there's also like alternatives to the term non-consensual that can feel a lot better because when you hear that something was non-consensual, you think like, oh, well, then someone was violated. And right. then it also creates this binary that I fight against a lot, that there's like someone who violates consent and someone who gets their consent violated. And where I want to go with my language is to a place where we're saying like consent wasn't taking place or consent wasn't being, we weren't practicing consent. Like I had a, I had a relationship where there was immense power dynamics like at play. I was dating my boss and I was babysitting his children and like all this stuff. And it was all above board. He was in an open relationship. His wife was thrilled that I was involved with him. And, um, I think it sort of let him off the, let her off the hook a little bit. And, mm. um, you know, I think what was going on there was like consent was not taking place. Like we were not practicing consent together. There were in, in, uh, individual instances where I did feel that consent was violated. Um, mm. So, you know, those stand out to me as like isolated. It's, it's almost like I've been sort of seeing this parallel where like people talk about PTSD versus CPTSD or like big trauma, big T trauma and little T right. trauma. It's like there's consent in um, or, you know, like a like an acute stressor versus a chronic stressor. Yes. So there's sort of this like chronic way that consent may or may not be being practiced. And then there's like these acute moments of consent violations. And those are really distinct things. Like they need to be addressed differently. Um, I feel like we're sort of winding down. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering um, if there are people that you have learned from that you want to honor or promote or people that you're really excited about collaborating with or that you just want to get their name yeah. out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mentioned Betty Martin. I think her work is amazing. Um, I work very closely with Sarah Casper who runs comprehensive consent. She works with, uh, like parents and kids. Um, I, uh, I'm trying to think of like who else, um, my very good friend Minachi does, um, nonviolent communication through decolonized and trauma informed lens. And I've learned a lot from them. I take, I take their classes and they take my classes. Um, my friend Umu Silla, um, who also did my educator training, um, they're a therapist and they are sort of like a, uh, the, the person that I turn to around all things burnout related, um, mm -hmm burnout and consent are, are very interrelated. And, um, Umu, uh, teaches classes and, um, does one-on-one -on -one work with people, both as a therapist and in other ways. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And their, their work is really phenomenal. And they, they talk about really, uh, like really nuanced things about boundaries 
and like expectations, you know, the expectation being that like you set a boundary and then it's respected (laughs) versus the reality, which is like, you don't know what your boundary is. And then you figure it out and then you say it and then you let it, let something slide and real, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's Mm -hmm. actually a much more complicated um, thing going on there. Um, and then, uh, I've also done quite a bit of work with, um, uh, mistress Vivian, who's a, a BDSM, uh, a dom, a pro dom and, uh, co-taught a boundaries and consent class with me. Um, and they're, uh, sort of working on their own, like educator stuff, uh, that I think is soon to come. Oh, CJ Miller. Um, CJ Miller is a gender consultant, one of my, one of my best friends. And, um, she also trained to be an intimacy coordinator with me and, um, her, uh, perspective on like, um, I mean, all these things that we've been talking about is really, um, fascinating. And I think she's one of the smartest people I know. So she's on, all these people are on Instagram. I can send you there. Um, their profiles. Um, that I, would yeah, be I'm, great. Yeah. Yeah. And then we can Amazing. include that in the, sure. in the show yeah. notes. And um, Umu is very present on your Instagram yeah. so people can find them mm-hmm. yeah. um, through your Instagram, which is at consent wizard. Yes. Yeah. Are there any, any upcoming workshops or um, mm. classes that you want to promote? Yeah. Um, I have my educator training coming up. So that um, has 12 spots and I think I have six spots left. Um, so that's like full, really like the most comprehensive training that I offer where it's like, I teach all this stuff and then I teach you to teach this stuff. And then I teach you to build your own curriculum around it. And then also like a lot of business support and we have guest speakers and, um, you know, like what it really means to like set up a, a business structure that will allow this stuff to like be sustainable for you. Um, and then, uh, I have a class, a self-advocacy practice class, um, in April on the 13th, that one's on zoom and we'll really practice like, um, noticing your stress responses and like noticing how to, and like figuring out how to kind of move through them and like, uh, talk about capacity. Like, can I advocate for myself right now? Or is this a moment to leave? And then really get into like breakout rooms where you practice, um, you know, saying what you want to say in those moments. Um, I think that's it. That's on the calendar right now. Oh, I also, well, this is not until June, but I do have a, just like a straight business intensive, like consent in your business. So it's not, it's a, we cover a bit about like how to build your business around this stuff, but it's really focused on like, how do you say no to projects and like fighting scarcity mentality and really finding projects that are aligned for you and like sort of building a roster for yourself of like people that you will refer to projects that might be aligned for them that aren't aligned for you. Um, you know, how to, how to make it clear what it is that you do so that people, um, know how to find you and, uh, yeah, like rates and negotiation and things like that. that's our show thanks for joining us our music is by nightlight we self-produce this podcast so please subscribe rate and review it really helps